before I um, before I start the sermon, I want to say something to you guys that I say before every flight on Frontier. This could get uncomfortable. It's okay. Sometimes God's Word has a uh, challenging message for us. Uh, so if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through, 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text on the screen. Let's pray before we begin. God, I, I pray that we would take to heart the message in your word today, that it would shape our community so that we can feel more like Jesus. Amen. Um, I recently read what could be the best book I've ever read. Um, it's The History of Reggae by Lloyd Bradley. For some of you, this holds a little interest, but I'm a, huge, I'm a history nerd, and I'm a huge music and especially ska and reggae fan, and this went into granular detail about the origins of ska and reggae, so I'm going to tell you all about it right now. Um, in all seriousness, though, it was fascinating. And, uh, and two places that kept coming up again and again was Uptown, which is tended to be where all the reggae labels and all the money and all the wealthy people were located, and then a place called Trenchtown. Now, you may, if you've listened to Bob Marley, his first hit single, his first number one single, is called Trenchtown Rock, and of course, you know, he used to sit in the government yard at Trenchtown. I understand what that means now after reading this book. So Trenchtown is just, it's the birthplace of reggae. And it's called Trenchtown because they didn't have underground sewers, but open trenches, okay? So, so that gives you an idea of the kind of place it was. It was, it was horrifically violent and crime-ridden, crime and of course, uh, you had whatever complications come with open trenches with, with sewage going down them. And, um, and, and, and one of the really interesting things is, is people in Uptown were not okay with people from Trenchtown, vice versa. And there was, they knew, like if someone from Trenchtown ever went to Uptown, uh, there were several things that marked them. The clothes, first of all. The, the dialect, right? The, that yard accent is very, very Trenchtown, and especially the dreadlocks. Now, this was interesting because, of course, Bob Marley, who we've all heard of, is famously from uh, Trenchtown, and that's part of where your reggae credibility comes from. But he, only, he moved there when he was 10. Now, the interesting thing that I did not know is his father's name was Norval Marley. I said Norval. Here's a picture of him. That's Bob Marley's father, folks. Yeah, not what you were expecting. His name is Norval Marley. And yeah, he, he lived uptown. If you couldn't tell, he's not from Trenchtown. So the interesting thing is after he died, Bob Marley had tons of family uptown, like lots and lots. And in fact, they, he, he, after he and his mom had moved to Trenchtown, they said, hey, you, you can come live with us, Bob. But, but you gotta drop everything Trenchtown. You gotta change your clothes, you need to have proper manners, and most of all, you need to cut the dreads off, which of course Bob Marley declined to do, and I'm glad because the man's a legend. But, he was their family, but they weren't going to treat him like family unless he first became like them. 
they may have thought of themselves as being very accepting, but what they were really doing is they were rejecting unless. It's conditional rejection. Become like me or you're not in. All of us, I don't, I've never met a person who thinks of themselves as unwelcoming. We all believe ourselves to be accepting and welcoming, but when we scratch the surface on this, very often what we really have going is conditional rejection. We're willing to accept someone if they're enough like us. Okay, so someone who is from a different class than you or me, and we might be from different classes, I'm aware of that, more education, less education, more resources, less resources, that person, it doesn't occur to you necessarily, hey, I could hang with them. It's not until you find out, oh, they're super into Game of Thrones too. They're enough like me. I'm not, I've never actually seen that show, so don't judge me. Um, <laughs> but you've got to find some way that they're like you before they're a worthwhile person. Someone comes from the other side of the political divide. And wherever you stand, even if you're like me, the only sane person in the room, a moderate, it's a joke, guys. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm nuts like everybody else. But, you know, someone who sounds different from you, someone who believes differently, oh, I better they better find a way to show me they're worthwhile. We both better be into jogging or something like that. Around issues of ethnicity, this is big. Yeah, I'm accepting. What are you talking about? I accept everybody. If I can discover that we've got things in common and they, oh, they're, they're kind of, the way they behave and everything, their values and the, and the way that they talk and everything makes sense to me, then I'll accept them. Otherwise, that's not a person I'm going to think about hanging out with. And another big one, and we're going to return to all these, is age. I, we have a very youth-worshipping culture. And it is really hard a lot of the time for people to understand that people who are older than you are worthwhile to get to know. And the thing is, a lot of us have experienced this sort of conditional rejection that calls itself acceptance and welcoming. It's painful that you've got to become like someone else before you're accepted by them. Now, at a low level, where we're not doing it intentionally, but sort of every person we meet and every person you meet is running each other through this grid. Is this a person for me? Is this my type of person? Is this someone I can hang with? Is this someone I'm going to have over for a barbecue or not? When, when a whole, like say a church community, has that sort of process, and uncritically, just that's how you're making decisions. You know what people experience who don't fit? They don't experience welcome. If, if someone somehow falls outside of whatever the majority demographics are, there might as well be a sign over the door that says, you're not welcome here. No one says get out. No one says you're not welcome, but the message is received loud and clear. Now, you can get to a higher level on this, and I'm going to focus inside the church because that's where the text takes us. But there, there have been and are still a lot of intentional rejection, where churches tend to intentionally segregate, where you might even hear vilification of certain groups from the pulpit. And when it gets to extreme levels, we see events like we've seen in the news recently, 
where, where, where these shooters are not even, don't even know the people that they hate, but they hate by category. They know that they're not their people. They know that they're someone that they don't owe to treat with dignity. There's an issue from the early church, which is what the book of Acts is about, that nearly split the church in two. Know what it was? It wasn't something to do with theology necessarily. It was this question. Do Gentiles, that is non-Jews, need to become Jews to be Christians? I'll say it again. This was the number one issue you're going to find throughout the New Testament. Do Gentiles need to become Jews to be part of Christ's family? From the point of view of the, it was an all-Jewish church at that point, do they need to become like us before they're welcomed? Now, Renee preached for us out of Acts chapter 10, where we saw Peter, the, the most influential figure and a strict Jew, who started out the chapter not wanting to associate with Gentiles, and by the end of the chapter, he baptizes Gentiles. That is, you're in the church. And now, we're going to see, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he's got to answer for it. Look with me, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through, th 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party rejoiced, no, criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? How do you think they're going to respond to the baptism part? <laughs> right? You, you see, for, for strict Jews of this era, they would not have casual conversations with non-Jews, much less go in and eat a meal with them, much less baptize them and accept them as part of their worshiping faith community. And so some of your translations may say those of the circumcision, some may say the circumcision party. I think circumcision party is more accurate because we're going to see these folks again later in Acts. These are people who are unwilling to accept Gentiles unless they first become Jews. And, and here's, it's not just the fact that they're Gentiles, right? It's the fact that they're not going to become what's called a proselyte. I know, we don't know that word. Let me explain. A proselyte was someone who was not born Jewish, but converts. And it wasn't just like, I want to be a Jew now, okay. No, it's a long process of education, passing lots of tests, getting circumcised, and baptized at the end. Right? You have to first take on all the cultural markers, learn the ways, and then you can be, there's an exception made for you as a Gentile. Okay? The people that Peter baptized were not proselytes. There's what, they were what was called God-fearers. When you see God-fearer in the New Testament, that means that someone who's not Jewish but believes in the scriptures and worships God but has not become a convert. And so the question is, do Gentiles first need to become Jews to be part of Christ's family? And these folks, who Peter has to answer to right now, are clearly not okay with it. They are not in the affirmative. So Peter is going to explain what happened. Verse 4. Peter began and explained it to them in order. Right? So he himself went from, I won't fellowship with a non-Jew to I will baptize. So he's going to tell them exactly what happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, 
And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. He knows who's talking to him. It's Jesus. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, uh, th this, this, we saw this in chapter 10 last week, and it's worth repeating. Okay? This is a very important message from Jesus to Peter and the rest of the church. What does it mean? What is this vision of a huge blanket that comes down that's covered in reptiles and all sorts of beasts that were, uh, uh, like, I've heard it called pigs in a blanket because <laughs> a lot of... Uh, you know, the, the Jewish dietary law forbid the eating of a lot of these animals. So there's two messages here. One is it's a vision of the church. It's saying that all, of, all peoples are to be part of Christ's church without distinction. And the second part of the message is that Peter is disgusted by it. Okay? Under, like, did you ever see um, Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom? We've all seen that, right? Remember the, the monkey brains and cockroaches part? Like, no one actually eats that. It's, it's not very culturally sensitive, but I remember seeing that as a kid. I was like, gross. All right, so Peter is looking at these animals that he's being told to eat and thinking to himself, gross. That response of disgust and revulsion is how Peter thinks of Gentiles being part of his community, okay? That, that's the idea, is you're disgusted by what God intends his church to be. So he's pointing out Peter's own ethnic hatred. Um, verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, apparently there were six brothers with him while he was telling this story, also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He's like, ask them. They'll, they'll vouch. All this happened. So think about this. So Peter's praying. Jesus shows him a vision. And, and, right, the, and we already talked what the vision's about. And as the vision ends, who shows up? Three Gentiles. And then the Holy Spirit says, go with them. So how, how is it that these guys got there at the moment the vision was ending? It was heavily suggested as the hand of God was bringing them there. And then the Holy Spirit says to Peter, go. Are you getting this? Like the whole Trinity is telling Peter, go to the Gentiles. So as he's defending his actions to the early church, he's like, hey, guys, I'm telling you, vision, I wouldn't normally do this, but vision, Jesus said this, Holy Spirit said this, God brought them right at that time uh, I realized there was something going on and I need to rethink things. Verse 13 says, And he, that is Cornelius, the Gentile in question, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. 
He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So, the headline here is that God sent an angel to a Gentile, all right, telling him, go get Peter so you can hear the gospel too. Does it seem like God's weighing in on this issue a bit? Yeah, huh? Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So he's referring back to Acts chapter 1 verse 4. When Jesus was still with them just before his ascension, he told them, John baptized with water, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Which one's greater? Is this a stumper? Or you guys can, like, it all see, we can all see that, that this is a, yeah, water, good, spirit, greater. Correct? That all obvious to everybody? Good, good, good. I'm glad you're with me. So if they have the greater baptism already, how could Peter deny them the water baptism? If the question is, are they supposed to be believers along with us, should we baptize them and receive them as brothers? What is God's answer to that? Making sense? You following? Okay. The, the, the message, God weighing in on this issue, is that Christ's family includes everyone. Christ's family includes everyone. It's not for one group. It's for everyone. Now the question is, are the hearers of Peter right now going to listen? Right? So Peter gave his best, most passionate, persuasive thing. He's finishing with jazz hands. He's like, <sighs> and everyone's silent. It even tells us, look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and heard a car alarm. <laughs> I swear, that thing's been going off forever. <laughs> and so you have to imagine... Like, the Bible doesn't waste words. When we're told a little detail, like there was silence, we're supposed to blow that up. It's a moment of tension. How are they going to respond? It's like that moment in the locker room in the 80s movies after the, the hero gives the speech. Let's go out there and beat Binghamton. No one says anything. That, right? that it, so this, that's what happens. Look at what happens. It says, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the hearers, most of the hearers said, okay, we get it. The elevator's gone to the top floor. Christ's family includes everyone. What do they need to do? They need to make room for their family. They need to make room for family. Back when I was uh, painting houses for a while, uh, I was on a crew that would get sent to do quick jobs a lot of the times, maybe five of us, and all the guys on the crew knew each other uh, really well, and I, of course, got new guy treatment, um, which is normal. But uh, at, at lunch, uh, they, they, would, they, had, they had this whole thing wired, so uh, you know, we'd be doing new builds a lot of the time, and the electricity was on, so they would pull out an electric griddle from the trunk, 
and plug it in, right? And, and get a little warmth around it. Everybody would huddle around it in a circle and take out tortillas and like warm up tortillas and then bust out like, like meat and beans and all that stuff from Tupperware and, and have a fantastic lunch. Um, and I would sit, you know, against the wall with my PB&J feeling quite miserable by, by comparison to what they were eating. This went on for a few weeks. And then one day, I heard the guys whispering to each other, you know. And I was like, what are they talking about? And then, uh, and then I turned around and made a space and pointed to my spot around the griddle and held up a taco for me. <laughs> and I was like, PB&J, get out of here. <laughs> Tacos, here I come. And I took my spot. They made room for me. Now, I brought with me some chocolate bars that day, so I was lucky. It made me a lot more popular. <laughs> but that's the idea of how the church is supposed to respond to the fact that Christ's family includes everyone. It's to make room for family. How do we do that? How do we do that? Like, the ball in our court is grace and peace. We don't need to criticize other people or anything like that. How do we intentionally make room for everyone at grace and peace? Well, first of all, we need self-awareness, all right? Um, I need to see my own heart when I'm running through, oh, is this a person that I'd like to hang with or not? Who am I doing that with? What, what, are, what are the indicators of someone I'm less interested in hanging out with, right? When we find ourselves uninterested, that's probably an indication of where we're allowing that, that no one teaches it to you, but you have to become like me for you to be worth my time. And we need to intentionally react against it and say, you know what, I... I do that with um, people who like hockey. I just can't get down with them, you know. <laughs> anyway, I was trying to think of something unoffensive. <laughs> Probably offended somebody. Why? How dare you say that about hockey fans? We're interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's going great. Um, <laughs> also, we need to have awareness of others, okay? Um, it's a, I mean, people get offended at this, but here goes. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Majority culture, that is white people, have a long history in this country of excluding others. There I said it. It's something we all know to be true. I mean, the historical examples are overwhelming. Now, given that fact, and the fact that that's happened in the church, for many, many decades. We not only, the, those of us in the majority culture, need to not only say, yeah, I'm not gonna, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna make sure I'm not unwelcoming. That's like a triple negative, but you all know what I mean. It, it's to take ownership of the past and say, okay, now how do I intentionally make room? How do I not take up all the space here, right? Also, for, uh, for different political points of view. A lot of the time, this is a tough one, um, in, in that it's, it's, it comes so naturally in these polarized times that 
I feel comfortable in my community group or whatever, I'm just going to launch into a rant, or I'm going to post a rant about the other side. And it's going to be ungracious, and I'm going to say, how could they unfriend me if you think this? Okay? And you may not realize that someone that is in your community group, someone who is in the room with you, is looking at that and saying, oh, such and such doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want me around. I guess I'm not supposed to be at Grace and Peace. You see how that works? We need to think and talk about others like they're in the room. This is key across the board. We need to be aware of how other ex others experience us. And are, are we intentionally making room? Or are we, with our coldness, our aloofness, or with some poorly chosen words, making it clear there's no room for them? Also, we need to have vision, okay? We need to have vision. We need to think about not only who's in our community now, but we need to think about people who are going to come. How are we making room for the people and the people groups, whether it's politically, age, class, ethnicity, you name it? How are we thinking through making room for people who aren't in the room yet? And we are going to be somewhere between zero and 100% effective here, okay? But it starts with becoming aware. It starts with even asking the question. Christ's family is supposed to include everybody. We need to make room for our family. We can't require others to come towards us. We need to move towards others. Please pray with me. Jesus, we pray that you would shape us through your word. We pray, God, that you would make us a people, a church community that makes room for others. That, that we would have empathy, that we would have sympathy, that we would, try and, that we would try and understand where other people are coming from. That we would look at the differences between us, not as a basis of dismissing someone as not worth my time, but instead of someone that complements your people and our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.